This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Coming up on Money Beat, what is Wall Street? Why does Wall Street matter? I know those sound like kind of basic questions, but in this day and age, those are critical questions. William D. Cohen is author of the new book, Why Wall Street Matters. He is here to discuss it. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio in New York City. And we are joined today for what is going to be a very interesting conversation. You're going to like this. We're going to we're going to go really back to the start of everything we talk about here. We're going to define some terms. We're going to bring in some current events. We're going to have a conversation around the question of what is Wall Street and why it matters and the reason we're going to do that is because in the studio today we have with us William D. Cohen, who is an author. You know him well. Um, House of Cards, The Last Tycoon, uh, the new book, Why Wall Street Matters, comes out today, February 28th, Tuesday. William, how are you? Welcome I'm to the great. show. Thank you, Paul, for having me. So, uh, look, we want to jump right in because there's, there's really so much to discuss here. And it's interesting because this, this is a small book compared especially to some of your other books. Uh, but I think the point is just to kind of, you know, you're, you're trying to hit one target, and so you're doing it very succinctly. But there's so much to talk about. But let's just go right at the start. First question, what is Wall Street? Okay, well, uh, first of all, uh, the more interesting, the most interesting thing is that it's not on Wall Street anymore. I <laughs> right. mean, uh, so Wall Street has become almost a Disney set of Wall Street, uh, the only bank, uh, major bank on Wall Street is, of course, Deutsche Bank, which isn't even American, uh, in the old J.P. Morgan uh, building at 60 Wall, or the new old J.P. Morgan building. Uh, you know, I happened to just to be down there yesterday, and one of the more interesting things about Wall Street is at 23 Wall Street, which was, of course, the original J.P. Morgan headquarters, or what we think of as the J.P. Morgan headquarters, there are still in the wall the uh, the divots uh, in the in the marble or or whatever it is the granite uh, from when the bomb blew up there uh, you it was know whatever twenty three something yeah twenty three yeah. and there's no plaque there, there's no right. mention of it uh, a, a lot of people died uh, something like thirty and uh, but you can still see the divots in the wall but uh, you know what is what is Wall Street I mean, Wa- Wall Street is global it's gargantuan. Uh, it's in every aspect of our lives. It encompasses not only uh, commercial banks, uh, big Wall Street banks, small community banks, uh, but also hedge funds and private equity firms and and clearing houses and derivatives and all of the things that, of course, listeners of this show know, know well. But it is global, powerful, and and as important as ever, yeah. and so it's, 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 and as mysterious as ever. Which is why you know one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. Right. So it's basically become a metonym for the entire financial services industry. Exactly. A metonym. I yeah. love that. Thank yeah. you. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about it being a, a black box. I thought the 
not that well you can see it if you go by the book uh the, the the cover design is interesting too right just plain black white letters why wall street matters very stark cover uh what was the design choice there well obviously i i was only the writer not the designer of the cover but i i think the idea was to frankly you know make a strong statement make, make it's a, the our, the book as you pointed out, it's not like my other books, which are these, these long narrative nonfiction uh, stories, really, uh, in, that, that encompass, com, uh, encompass Wall Street. Uh, this is uh, a bit of a, a polemic, an argument that I make, uh, because I think that, by and large, especially uh, over the course of the campaign, uh, this last presidential campaign, where we heard so much rhetoric, dare I say demagoguery, from both the left and the right about the evils of Wall Street, uh, since the financial crisis, Wall Street has been villainized, uh, become a punchline, uh, been an easy way for people to sort of check a populist uh, box. And you combine that with the fact that most people don't really understand Wall Street to begin with, which is Wall Street's fault for not making itself easier to understand and explaining itself better. I thought, we don't know whether to think Wall Street's great. We don't know whether to think Wall Street is terrible. We don't know whether people from Wall Street should be able to work in Washington uh, as as both, uh, you know, Hillary and, and Elizabeth Warren and uh, uh, Bernie Sanders said, uh, or, and even Donald Trump was Donald very, Trump. Was yeah, very let's critical. Let's not forget that. Uh, let's I mean, not yeah, yeah, forget Trump Donald Trump. And now... Slamming. Slamming, slamming Hillary for, her, her for taking money for speeches, right? You, you actually mentioned this as a book, and we and we've written about it a lot here too. That I thought was interesting is the fact that in both, you know, platforms for both the Republicans and the Democrats was a form of Glass Steagall or you know a modernization it's in of the Republican yeah. platform for yeah. crying out loud, um, <laughs> which, I mean, which just shows, is, and it's a dumb idea for all of them. And to me, it just showed. How and, and again, I don't really blame anybody because part of the problem is that Wall Street. And I worked on Wall Street for seventeen years and been writing about it for thirteen years. So that's thirty years of wisdom. If you don't, you know, haven't worked on Wall Street, it's kind of hard to figure out what the heck's going on there. Yeah. And so I decided that we needed to sort of start at the beginning, explain to people where Wall Street even came from, how it evolved, the fact that the 2008 financial crisis was not the first time that Wall Street has exacerbated or been part of a big financial crisis, and and just because Wall Street does get itself into trouble uh, repeatedly doesn't mean that at its basic uh, Wall Street isn't incredibly important and incredibly important to the way we live and the way people all around the world live. And you can't really have a fact-based debate about the importance of Wall Street, something that is so important if people don't understand what it's all about. I mean, in reality, like this country and I think across the world, banking and, I, you know, essentially Wall Street – has long had a history of being, you know, criticized whenever there's a problem erupts in the economy or recession. You know, Wall Street comes into focus. I mean, it was the same thing in the Depression. You had the Panic of 1907, which led to the Federal Reserve. I mean, this is not what happened after the financial crisis. Is that it was very normal, in fact. I think. And by the, the way, populism. financial crises and are William normal. And William Bryant, yeah. yeah. I mean, we shouldn't. I mean, look, if people do things wrong. And, and I think there was a lot of evidence around of bad banker behavior that should have been prosecuted and, frankly, wasn't, which is, frankly, a, a mistake, which I don't understand. It's still a mystery to me. But that left a vacuum filled by ambitious politicians who wanted to score populist points by denigrating Wall Street, filled by regulators and uh, 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 who regulate Wall Street and want to punish Wall Street for the, what the prosecutors didn't get around to doing. 
But all of that ends up hurting the American people because, it, you know, I, I quote, talk about Larry Summers talking about secular stagnation, having the GDP growing only at 2% a year, sort of condemned to that slow growth rate. Well, in large part, it's because this beautiful engine that is Wall Street, there's sand in the, in the damn thing, thanks to uh, these regulations that are just, a lot of them don't make sense. And a lot of it is, too, is like if you put commercial banks, which a lot of times in the small like kind of lenders in the communities, which get lumped in when the, the populist sort of criticism of Wall Street comes about, I mean, that's really what provides Main Street, the small mom and pop businesses across this country, the small employers with the capital to, to, you know, to function. They, they're the ones providing the loans. Um, and I, I thought one of the things I thought was interesting in the book is sort of on the one hand, Wall Street is regularly and the banks are regularly front and center when we have a financial crisis or recession. But also they're the key, that liquidity that they can provide are the key to getting out of that. And that conundrum, I think, that oftentimes then faces politicians of how do you, you know, sort of satisfy your constituents and with regulation so that you don't have that next financial well, crisis, I, I think but also let the economy recover quickly. I, I think part of the, the, the hard question to that is in, in a lot of these, you know, it is in the name of it. It's in the very name of it, a financial crisis. Yeah. You know, like there's a reason that there are financial crises and they often originate with the banks themselves and their behavior. And it's not just fraudulent behavior. I mean, there is there is a culture on Wall Street. There is a culture in the banking industry. And I, I guess the the question is, how do you how do you you know regulate is the, the word that comes but you need to re- how do you regulate that but, culture and that you, behavior you, so that you don't have these real bad explosions but also i would also raise a point isn't there a culture too like that's just it's found in the banking industry and because the banking industry essentially provides the oxygen or liquidity to the economy in capitalism inherent like the boom bust sort of well look long before there was a wall street as i mentioned in the book there were financial crises yep. i mean right. uh, the 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 tulip uh, bubble the south seas bubble uh, uh, those things happened long before there was uh, anything like uh, manhattan uh, uh, the dutch colony right. uh, that we're now sitting in uh, so uh, part of it is human nature uh, so uh, you're not going to be able to regulate away human nature. But just like with cars, you know, you could have cars uh, that could go, at, at, you know, at 250 miles an hour. There could be no speed limits. You don't have to wear a seatbelt. You could drive with a whiskey bottle on the wrong side of the road if you wanted. That's that's one way to go. Uh, and there are times when Wall Street has been allowed to do that. Right. Uh, but I think basically Wall Street wants – uh, rules and regulations and want speed limits and want seatbelts. So now we're in a very interesting moment, right, because uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, has said basically, you know, oh, my God, my friends can't get loans. I'm going to kill Dodd-Frank. I'm going to kill Volcker Rule. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely turn over all the regulations on Wall Street. Well, that also, unfortunately, is not the answer. We sort of saw what that kind of looks like uh, in the years leading up to the financial crisis when, you know, after, after Glass-Steagall right, was repealed right. and then for the next five or six years, people were allowed to just kind of do what they wanted. And they did do what they wanted because that's, you know, they, that's what they get rewarded to do on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to marry a smart repeal of the re- parts of Dodd-Frank and the Volcker Rule and capital requirements in Basel III that don't make sense with real restraints, seatbelts, 
uh, that that makes sense for Wall Street. And my personal solution, my favorite solution, which nobody else really talks about or like, is that we have to revamp the compensation system on Wall Street, uh, put put elements of it back to the way it used to be when Wall Street was a series of private partnerships. Let, you know, I, that's a really huge. That's actually, I thought that was a huge point in the book yeah. that I wanted to focus on. But let's take a break and do it on the other side of of this important message. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. We're talking today with William Cohen, author of the new book, Why Wall Street Matters. And if you like what you are hearing, you want more podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, we love producing them for you. You can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. You could follow us on Twitter. We're on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. You can subscribe, and then you get this all. It's automatic. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to hope to find it. Hope that you see me tweet it out. You can just subscribe, and it's all there for you. Uh, we are on iHeartRadio, Amazon Echo, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play Music app, and we left off at what I thought was a really interesting point that I don't, I think everyone's aware of the fact that the Wall, Wall Street banks, especially, well, investment banks on Wall Street physically, especially went from the days of being partnerships to being publicly traded companies. I mean, everyone's aware of that. I don't know if people quite glean how important that change was, and you get into it at some point in the book, and I want to read one one thing here, because I think it kind of crystallizes it, you know, and you say, what kept the investment banks on the straight and narrow path, at least theoretically anyway, was the duly not inconsiderable, not yeah, my eyes are going, not inconsiderable chance that their partner's capital would be lost in one fell stupid swoop, wiping away in an instant years of their own accumulated wealth. That's, I kind of read that a little bit out of context. It's you know, if they made bad bets, if they did things that were wrong. Right. Let's talk about that. How big a, a change was – you talk about the culture of Wall Street. That switch from the partner model to the, the publicly traded companies. So uh, I think that's one of the uh, largest, most important moments in Wall Street history that is basically still underappreciated. Yeah. Uh, it began in 1970 when DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, Genretta, a firm that w- so many of us admired greatly because it was so nimble and aggressive and so interesting. And, of course, then it was sold for uh, $10 billion to Credit Suisse in yeah. 2000 and seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. But but it was the first firm in 1970 – But, but you have, the New York Stock Exchange rules would not allow Wall Street firms to go public because the rules were that – the New York Stock Exchange had to approve of every stockholder. In a firm. Uh, in a firm. In a, firm. In a right. member firm. In, in a member firm. Yeah. So obviously if you were public, 
you couldn't approve because right. people were buying selling stock all the time. Well, Dan Lufkin, ironically, uh, one of the founders of DLJ, went to his first New York uh, uh, New York Stock Exchange Board of Governors meeting with the DLJ S one in his hand, the IPO papers, uh, the IPO papers, and put it out on the table. And you know, the other governors like Gus Levy and Felix Rowett and you know, went nuts because it was against the rules. But he was he was smart. He was right. He was persuasive, and he got the New York Stock Exchange to change the rules. Uh, that all started in 1969. Now, yeah. uh, you guys are too young to remember 1969, but that was a time when a lot of people in this country weren't really focusing on what was going on on Wall Street. Yeah. There were other things. So, so he wanted to make this change when the co- country's mindset was in a completely different place, i.e., in Vietnam. A- and he managed to get this done uh, in 1970. Uh, DLJ went public. Then immediately, you know, the whole ethos on Wall Street changed. Merrill Lynch went public. Bates and Company went public, uh, Bear Stearns in 85, Morgan Stanley in 86, uh, you know, on and on. And so what, what happened? So what, what's, the, what's the consequence mm-hmm. of that? The importance of that is where once each partner had his own capital on the line every day and one of his partners could do something stupid and that would be the end of it. And by the way, there was nobody saving Wall Street in those days. The first Wall Street firm to ever get saved – by the government was Bear Stearns in 2008. Right. Before that, every other firm, if they got into trouble, that was it. So there was a real carburetor on people's behavior. The people were rewarded to take prudent risks with their own money. Well, after all these firms were public and had other people's money, as someone said, the, the, the most dangerous three words in the English language is <laughs> other people's money, uh, they started getting rewarded. And I know because I was a banker for 17 years. I worked at Lazard when it was private, and I worked at Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan, obviously, when they were public. And people got rewarded to take big risks with other people's money. And, and when you combine that with no accountability, like you know, in 2008, you, know, you, you, you privatized the games but socialized the risks, well, my God, it's a recipe for disaster. And nobody has been talking about that since – you know, with all this Dodd-Frank and Volcker rule and re-regulation and all that, no one's talked about that. Right. No one's talked about changing the incentive system if we're going to take off all these rules. Uh, rules. It's like, okay, he, he, no seat belts, no speed limits. Oh, by the way, here's your whiskey bottle. Drive away. I mean, that's insanity. We can't do that again. We've been down that path, and it wasn't that long ago. So let's fix it. It's part of what I like to call a grand bargain. Let's fix it. Let's have a grand bargain between the Trump administration and Wall Street. You want these regulations relieved and changed? You have to change your compensation system. Yeah, I think the interesting thing, too, is I remember there's a brief period after the crisis hit, 2008, maybe 2009, where there was some talk of – you know, nationalizing the banks, breaking them up and reselling them, which, you know, at least would have some of them would have been back in pub, probably maybe private hands, maybe not. But if you're talking about this mistake of, of these companies going private public, that was the one time where you could have changed that and it didn't happen. And I, I don't see any way that you could force Wall Street to go private. No, no. And well, they're all they're making enough. money, so there's no real incentive for them to. Well, plus, there's not enough capital. I yeah. mean, you know, right. how, how do you take Goldman Sachs public, a private? It's right. a hundred, ten, twenty billion dollar market value company. I mean, so, 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 so that's so, not going to happen. No, no, but that that's not going to happen. But t- to me, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, if you there were real leadership on Wall Street, which unfortunately I don't think there has been for a long time, and you know, with all due respect to. Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein and James Gorman and all, all the rest of them, Brian Moynihan, if there were real leadership on Wall Street, somebody would say, a real leader would say, you know what? 
we're going to marry these, this regulatory reform, which we think is really important because it's going to mean more loans for the American people. It's going to mean better liquidity for the American people. We're going to, no one's going to tell us to do this. No one's going to ask us to do this because Donald Trump, Lord knows, probably won't a- ask them to do it, uh, although it would be nice if he did. Uh, but we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. When was the last time somebody on Wall Street said, I'm going to do this because it's the ra- right thing to do? And that sounds like a rhetorical question. I wish it weren't, but uh, wouldn't it be nice if Lloyd Blankfein or Jamie Dimon said, you know what, nobody's asking us to do this, but this is the right thing to do, and we, be- and we are going to do it because we want to properly align our incentives as a firm with the goals of- and desires of the American people because we don't want to be the cause of the next financial well, crisis. Well, it also strikes me as like the the going public was the first step for the Wall Street firms. Then you had about, you know, 15 years, 14 years later, Glass-Steagall, which then had them competing against the major commercial banks. And then... And by the way, of course, they were doing all that even before the Glass-Steagall right. Act was repealed. I mean, yeah, exactly. Glass-Steagall was slowly... I mean, I went from Lazard to Merrill Lynch to J.P. Morgan and kept doing the same thing. Even yeah. before Dodd, uh, Glass-Steagall was repealed. No, no. I mean, that's the thing. I think everyone thinks it had been 99 Glass-Steagall. No, it had it been whittled away long, long before, before that. But but then, again, and I think it was like 2003, 2004, they got rid of the leverage sort of limits on investment banks as well mm-hmm. so they could better compete. And it, it, like those three things, you get rid of like sort of capital controls so you can make all, you know. And, and, and with an incentive system, I mean, talking about I mean, Wall Street's a very Darwinian place. Yeah. And people are pretty simple. They do what they're rewarded to do. So if you're, say, you're a, a, a mortgage-backed security salesman, what are you going to do? You know your bonus is dependent on selling mortgage-backed securities. You're going to continue to package up those mortgages, even though the credit guys are telling you, hey, they may not be right. You're going to package them into securities. You're going to you know, co-op the, the uh, rating agencies to give you a AAA rating. You're going to sell them off as uh, AAA investments all around the world. And no one's going to stop you until the market stops you, because that's what you get rewarded to do. And, and that's where the incentive is so important. Well, can, can we dig into that a little bit? I mean, you're talking about changing the compensation, um, and you say no one's listening, so there are people listening right now. Well, let's do something let's, about let's, it. No, no, let's do, dig in. Like, what exactly, when you say change compensation, like, what okay. exactly are you talking so, about? So, obviously, you know, as we were saying, you can't take Goldman Sachs private. You can't take J.P. Morgan Chase private. Okay, so the way I think about this is... There's, what, 35,000 people who work at Goldman Sachs. Let's take the top 500 of them. I mean, and for whatever reason, a lot of them are men. Too many of them are men. I wish more of them were women. We'd be living in a better world if that were the case. But, uh, uh, you know, these guys, the ones who decide who gets promoted, they decide how much people get paid, they're on the management committees, they decide what business lines Goldman Sachs should be in, they decide how capital should get allocated. Those top 500 guys, those top 500 guys, not the full 35,000, those top 500 guys need to have their full net worth on the line again. They need to, you know, there needs to be a security designed, a legal agreement designed. I mean, let's get Wachtell on it. Let's get Skadden on it. We'll figure it out. Uh, uh, And so that creditors and shareholders of these companies know that if stuff starts to go wrong, they have a legitimate, uh, perfectible claim against the full net worth of these people. They can go after if they if if they're if they lose money on their their credit their debt if it goes into you know a structure restructuring or a liquidation or a bankruptcy they can claim on the full net worth of those top five hundred people. Now obviously it's going to be a drop in the bucket. You know if you've got a 
$25 billion uh, uh, loan that you've lost and, you know, these guys' net worth is a billion dollars or whatever, that's a drop in the bucket. But it's better than nothing. And more importantly, it'll refocus and keep their focus squarely on taking prudent risks. You know, going back to the book House of Cards, which which I wrote about the uh, uh, collapse of Bear Stearns. I wish it was uh, the basis of, for the TV series on Netflix, uh, but, it, but it wasn't, unfortunately. But uh, I talked to Jimmy Kane, who was, of course, the CEO of, of, of Bear Stearns. I talked to him for a very long time, and it was he was incredibly generous with his time. And one thing I asked him about was, what is it like to lose a billion dollars in your own stock? Because, it, first of all, he was the first Wall Street CEO to be worth a billion dollars in his own stock, and that was like January 2007. But he was also one of the first to lose a billion dollars when he sold his stock in Bear Stearns in March of 08. He sold it for like $60 million. So he says something very interesting to me, which is that actually it didn't hurt me at all. And I was quite taken aback. It only hurts my heirs. And the reason it didn't hurt me at all, he said, was because I actually had, you know, a billion six, he said. I don't know whether that's true. But I'd already taken out 600 million. I already had 600 million tucked away in my bank accounts. So I lost a billion. Okay, I was playing with the house's money any anyway. If he was, if he had lost a billion six... And not a billion. We would have remember Kate Kelly's very wonderful, famous story in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, uh, Jimmy Kane was smoking pot and playing yeah, yeah, playing bridge it. when he should have yeah. when, when he when he should have been pay, paying attention to Bear Stearns. Well, had he not been doing those things and had his full net worth on the line, you know, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't have been doing those he wouldn't have been maybe. doing those yeah, things. Yeah. No, I mean that, that was one of the stories from the crisis that we kept hearing. It wasn't just Bear Stearns; it was Lehman as well. Like the the, the people at the top were just completely unaware of. <laughs> That's because they were fat, dumb, and happy. They yeah. were satisfied with their own yeah. bank accounts, and they knew that it was never going to get taken away, despite all their protestations that you know they had a lot of money tied up in their stock, and they did. But you know, you know, there's only so much you can spend in a, in a given lifetime. So one of the questions, obviously, you get in the book is Dodd-Frank. Um, also, you know, you had Basel III that came out of the, you know, to sort of regulate the banks, put capital requirements. And the Fed regulations. Yeah, Fed regulations. Can we talk about that? Because, you know, Donald Trump obviously just a couple of weeks ago, you know, signed an executive order to review um, Dodd-Frank and the Volcker rule and all that. What do you think Dodd-Frank gets wrong and what does it get right? So – First of all, you know, the original Glass-Steagall Act, I think what we refer to as the 1934 Act or whatever, that was 35 pages, 35 pages long. The, the section that referred to And, and that was the act that, that forbid commercial banks and investment banks from being under you the same house. You had to choose. You had a year to choose. You had to be one or the other. One or the other. And the sections that pertained to that were three pages long. Yeah. Three pages. So you had a year to do it. And basically, the only firm that really had a situation with that was J.P. Morgan, and they ended up spinning off Morgan Stanley. Uh, uh, you know, Lazard just kept being an investment bank. Goldman kept being an investment bank. So uh, fast forward to Dodd-Frank. So the original draft, I think, was like 2,300 pages. Right. When the bill got actually signed, the, it was, the typeface was different, and it was down to 848 pages. Davis Polk, the, the big Wall Street law firm, has, has, deter- has said that there's been more than 20,000 additional pages of regulations, which until recently, when the current acting head of the SEC put a stop on to that, uh, those regulations were still being written. I mean, who knows what these are all about? Still being written. I mean, that's important. It's still, 2017. Still the law was be, passed in 2010. Right. right. Still Although, a lot written. of them haven't, haven't been and put in. they still have not put everything into action. No. Which, you know, frankly, that is a big mistake. Right. And, and, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is how uh, for every 
four people now who work on Wall Street. It's the job of one, so one out of five, to watch what they do all day long, to make sure they're complying with all the rules and regulations. I mean, if you look, I mean, I think J.P. Morgan has more than 45,000 people out of a 200,000-plus workforce whose job it is only to watch what everybody else is doing. Now, that's insane. And there, but there are a lot of subtle things, too, which I think your audience can appreciate. And this is very important. Like one of the things that came out of the, 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 the new capital requirements, the Fed's rules, and this was by, uh, you know, promulgated largely by Dan Turillo, who has announced the Fed governor who's just right, announced just his, his, his resignation, which I think is a crucially important development, is, is liquidity in the bond market. You know, basically, the Fed has decided that it doesn't really want Wall Street firms to make that liquidity in the bond market anymore, something we take for granted. Like, if you want to sell, if one of your clients wants to sell a billion dollars worth of treasuries, you should be able to do it at par or basically the price that's quoted. Well, because- when you say liquidity, you're basically just talking about money being in a market so that people so can, can buy and trade. can buy and right. sell. Right. You know, it's one, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one thing to underwrite, which is hugely important, i.e., you know, uh, initial public offerings of stock or selling right. bonds in the first place. But my God, I mean, the by far um, the most important thing Wall Street really does is provide liquidity, the, right. the ability to buy and sell securities after they are initially sold. Well, if you charge Wall Street firms, a you know, in effect, a fee on their capital for doing that, well, then you're, I mean, when people need to get out or want to get out, you know, thinking they're going to get par or 101 cents on the dollar, they end up getting 92 cents. Well, you know, on a billion-dollar trade, that's a lot of money, and yeah. that's and, and that is basically Dan Torillo's baby. That's what Dan wow. Torillo is. Um, so we have about a minute left. Well, what, I, I guess goes too fast. now. Now, yeah, I, now, now, here's the, we the question two, that we don't. Uh, that <laughs> you're not going to have time to answer. But why does Wall Street matters? I mean, you oh. discuss the to build. You know, it provides the capital. The simple answer to me is it's the left ventricle of capitalism. It, it, it makes our economy grow. And it's not just our economy. I mean, we live in a capitalist world now. So, and, and, and the capitalist world, companies all around the world, look to Wall Street. Wall Street is a national asset. It's a jewel. Look, it doesn't do everything right. And what it does wrong needs to be fixed. And that's one of the things I, I try to talk about in, in this book. But it should be celebrated. We shouldn't allow the Elizabeth Warrens of the world to denigrate it and vilify it because then you're actually – and they do it in the name of trying to help the American people, which really irritates me. By the way, I'm a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts, <laughs> just so you know. I should be like somebody who loves Elizabeth Warren. But I, her – what comes out of her mouth makes me cringe because it's so obvious that she doesn't – Either she's playing the, for the populist vote and, and, and just villainifying Wall Street for fun, or she doesn't really understand it. And, and for a Harvard Law professor who teaches bankruptcy and is now in the U.S. Senate and who's so outspoken about Wall Street who doesn't understand Wall Street, well, that's why I wrote this book. Because if she doesn't get it, then the American people obviously don't get it, and they deserve to understand it. They need to understand it. It's so incredible. If you like your pickup truck, your widescreen TV, or your mortgage, or your pension, or your 401k, any of those things, forgetting your iPhone, which obviously a billion people have bought iPhones, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, the computing power on iPhone is extraordinary, as we all know. It could not exist without Wall Street. No, I think I mean I, I think that's the the conundrum that this country, the politicians consistently face in this country, is we provide 
capital to industries and, and we move it quickly to those industries you know better than any other country probably that is you know around and that has been the core to our innovation but on the other hand i think you know people around the country you know the average person gets sick and tired of the regular blow-ups in the financial we might system have to, we, we might have to do a part two of this yeah. if you have time william <laughs> sure. i know you're you know no, let's do sure it. you're busy now with the book out but yeah actually i'm actually i'm not even kidding we might want to have you come on and yeah. do a part two no this has been great uh, William D. Cohen is the author. Why Wall Street Matters is the book. Thank you for coming in. Really Thank appreciate you for it. Both for having me. Thanks. All right, I'm not kidding about part two. All right, uh, <laughs> folks. Thanks either. for listening. We'll catch up with you soon. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com/podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices.